Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present George Beebe of the Quincy Institute, who examines the new danger of miscalculation or accident after Russia's annexation of 15% of Ukraine's territory and American support for diplomacy to end the war. Maria Luisa Mendonça, director of the Network for Social Justice and Human Rights in Brazil, who assesses the surprising results of the first round of Brazil's October 2nd presidential election. And Drew Hudson, a consultant with grassroots climate groups, who discusses the activist campaign that led to the defeat of Joe Manchin's fossil fuel-friendly dirty deal and the ongoing fight to ensure its demise. But first we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. Thousands of U.S. workers are gearing up to go on strike this fall, only weeks before crucial midterm elections where control of Congress hangs in the balance. While public support for labor is at its highest point since 1965, according to a recent Gallup poll, union organizing drives have targeted and won important victories against corporate giants like Starbucks, Amazon, Chipotle, and Verizon. In the first half of 2022, the labor action tracker at Cornell University identified 180 strikes involving 78,000 workers. In recent weeks, thousands of teachers and healthcare workers have walked off their jobs, including 15,000 nurses in Minnesota, 4,500 teachers and staff in Columbus, Ohio, and 2,000 mental health workers in California. Thousands more union members voted to authorize strikes at universities, auto plants, railroads, and supermarkets. In Boston, 300 workers at the Cisco Food Distribution Company launched a labor action after their contract expired at the end of September. This year, Cisco workers have gone on strike in the Baltimore area and St. Cloud, Minnesota. Trevor Ashley, a Cisco truck driver for over 20 years, told the Guardian newspaper, We've been called essential workers for the longest time, and now it's just empty words. A new report by the UK-based advocacy group Global Witness finds that over 1,700 environmental defenders have been killed in the last decade, primarily in Brazil's Amazon River Basin, Colombia, the Philippines, Mexico, and Honduras. These murders from 2012 to 2021 were perpetrated by hitmen, organized crime groups, and pro-government operatives. Global Witness launched its series of annual reports in 2012 after the assassination of Cambodian environmentalist Chut Wadi, who is investigating illegal logging. Overall, the murder of environmental activists is most frequently seen in resource-rich, low-income countries with large indigenous communities. The 200 people killed in 2021 included eight park rangers in Virunga National Park in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. In June, British journalist Dom Phillips and indigenous ally Bruno Pereira were killed during a confrontation in the Javari Valley in the Brazilian Amazon. 
The Global Witness Report also documents several important victories for indigenous communities. In South Africa's Eastern Cape, indigenous groups successfully pressured energy giant Shell to stop oil exploration in whale breeding grounds. The report's authors warned the number of murders were likely a significant underestimate, with activists' deaths often occurring in ecosystems crucial to averting the worst impacts of the climate crisis. A year ago, Europe experienced what's known as wind drought, where wind speeds fell 15% below average, a condition that had dramatic effect on wind power generation. It was one of the least windy periods in the United Kingdom in the last 60 years. Wind farms produced 18% of the UK's power in September 2020, but in September 2021, that percentage plummeted to only 2%. To make up the energy gap, the UK was forced to restart two mothballed coal plants. Yale Environment 360 magazine reports the recent declines in surface winds over Europe have renewed concerns about a link to climate change. Although there is conflicting data on global wind speeds, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change forecasts slowing winds for the coming decades. By 2100, they say average wind speeds could drop by as much as 10%. According to the research, reduced wind speeds are the result of decreasing temperature differences between cold polar regions and the warm tropics. Paul Woods, professor of atmospheric science at the University of Reading in England, observed, Since 1979, Arctic temperatures have been rising four times faster than the rest of the globe. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. The war in Ukraine has entered a new, more dangerous phase after Vladimir Putin held a referendum in Russian-held territory and declared the annexation of 15% of Ukraine. The annexed region that includes Donetsk, Luhansk, Kherson, and Zaporizhia is now the target of a Ukrainian military offensive that has recaptured significant swaths of land in eastern and southern areas once controlled by Moscow. At a rally in Red Square on September 30th, Putin said Russia was fighting an existential battle with Western elites he deemed the enemy, while denouncing what he called the American-led neo-colonial system. In response, the U.S. and its Western European allies condemned Russia's referendums as fraudulent and the annexations as illegal. Reacting to the annexation of his country, President Volodymyr Zelensky announced that Ukraine would be applying for accelerated membership into NATO the very outcome that Putin was trying to prevent. Your reporter spoke with George Beebe, Director of Grand Strategy at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, former Director of the CIA's Russia Desk, and advisor to Vice President Dick Cheney. Here he examines the new danger of miscalculation or accident after Russia's annexation of Ukraine territory and a new poll that finds a majority of Americans want the U.S. to pursue negotiations to end the conflict. 
Well, I, I think this is an extremely dangerous situation. And uh, we're in an escalatory spiral with the Russians that has been going on for, for years, actually, but it has gotten quite serious uh, just this past year uh, with uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And um, at each stage in this escalation, each side thinks that if it ups the ante, that the other side will sober up and back down. But in fact, at every stage, each side has escalated rather than backed off. And, and that's what's happening right now. The Russians have responded to the recent uh, Ukrainian counteroffensive success by doubling down, by partially mobilizing the country for, for war, calling up some 300,000 reservists in Russia to go to the front and fight by holding these referendums in Ukraine and, and then uh, immediately annexing this territory and announcing that Russia is willing to use every means at its disposal, uh, which is tr a transparent reference to the use of nuclear weapons uh, in order to uh, defend Russia against attacks. So this is most definitely an escalation. Uh, one of the difficulties we're facing right now is that the Russians are feeling increasingly desperate and cornered. Uh, and when countries feel like their backs are against the wall and they have a choice between fighting or ceasing to exist as a country, uh, when they feel their survival is at stake, they can do some breathtakingly reckless things. Uh, and that's the situation that Russia feels that it is in right now. And we should not underestimate the lengths that uh, Russia might go to uh, under these circumstances. So it's a, a very, very dangerous situation that we're in. Well, George, before we run out of time, I, I did want to touch on really one, one very important uh, polling project that the Quincy Institute uh, was involved in recently. The Quincy Institute commissioned a recent poll that found that 57% of American likely voters support the U.S. pursuing negotiations as a possible way to end the war in Ukraine, even if it means making concessions to Russia. Tell us a little bit about this poll and its significance. Well, what, what I think this poll shows is that the American people have an awful lot of common sense um, and, and that's a cause for hope in this very difficult situation. I don't think this poll shows that anyone believes that uh, we ought to be depriving Ukraine of the ability to defend itself. I think there's very strong support among Americans for continuing to do that. But I think what, what, uh, what the poll shows is that Americans believe that that support ought to be coupled with a diplomatic track with talks that are aimed at finding a way to end this war. And, and that's a very sensible position, I think, to have. And uh, I hope that our political leadership in Washington starts to recognize the wisdom that the American people have on all of this, because if we're going to find a way out of this, uh, we have to look at both carrot and stick. We have to couple what has been uh, a largely uh, military strategy with uh, diplomatic engagement to try to find uh, a way out of the situation. That's how Kennedy found his way out of the Cuban Missile Crisis. He both threatened to attack Soviet forces in Cuba, but he also had a diplomatic track of talks 
that ultimately resulted in a compromise, and we were able to avoid Armageddon then. And I think that's the model we need today. That was George Beebe, Director of Grand Strategy at the Quincy Institute and former Director of the CIA's Russia Desk. Find a link to the new poll that finds a majority of Americans want the U.S. to pursue negotiations to end the Ukraine war by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. Going into Brazil's crucial October 2nd presidential election, a number of polls reported that the nation's popular former president, Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva of the left-wing Workers' Party, was 15% ahead of his opponent, incumbent right-wing President Jair Bolsonaro. But when the votes were counted, Bolsonaro did better than forecast by finishing only five percentage points behind Lula's 48%. Because no candidate won more than 50% of the vote, the election now moves to a second round on October 30th. Many Brazilians blame Bolsonaro for mismanagement of the economy and the coronavirus pandemic that killed 700,000, a death toll second only to COVID deaths in the U.S. Bolsonaro is also accused of implementing policies that have accelerated destruction of the Amazon rainforest by loggers in big agribusiness. In the weeks before the election, Bolsonaro claimed without evidence that government employees were committing voter fraud to deprive him of victory, leading many to fear he would enlist the military to launch a coup to stay in power. Your reporter spoke with Maria Luisa Mendonça, director of the Network for Social Justice and Human Rights in Brazil, who examines the results of the first round of the presidential election and what's at stake in the final round for the people of Brazil and the world. Yes, it was a surprise because, uh, you know, all the polls were showing that uh, Bolsonaro uh, didn't have more than about 37% of the vote. But uh, I think this uh, analysis that uh, a lot of people who vote for Bolsonaro would not say, it's almost like people are ashamed to say they're going to vote for Bolsonaro. So this is probably what happened you know, in any case, I think the fact that uh, Bolsonaro is the current president and Lula was able to win, you know, to get more votes, so not enough to win in the first round, but still he got over 6 million votes more than Bolsonaro. I think this is an important sign. And also it's important to understand that uh, Bolsonaro was only able to take power because, first of all, there was a parliamentary coup against President Dilma Rousseff, who was also with the Workers' Party in 2016. And then after that, Lula was arrested and uh, was in jail on false charges of corruption. There was no evidence against him. So he was not able to run in the last elections when uh, Bolsonaro was elected. So the only reason why the right-wing parties uh, were able to take power and Bolsonaro is a result of that is because there was a parliamentary coup in the first place. This neo-fascist movement that Bolsonaro represents, it's a global movement represented by Trump in the U.S., in other parts of the world. 
So it's not like suddenly, you know, Brazilians decided to vote for this person. There was like an orchestrated effort to create this political space for this unknown figure like Bolsonaro, you know, to take power in Brazil. Maria, what is the outlook for the runoff election at the end of this month? And what are some of the major issues that Brazilians will be thinking about when they go to the polls? It's much more likely that Lula will win because he has more votes and uh, other smaller parties that uh, were running in the first round uh, probably would support Lula. So, But that's the hope. And uh, I think what would be important is uh, for the Workers' Party to show that uh, they, again, will be able to change the lives of people in concrete ways. There was a lot of investment, for example, on education, on health care during the Workers' Party administration. And Bolsonaro has dismantled the very important institutions like the labor ministry, the human rights institutions, the environmental ministry. I think that uh, it will be important for uh, the Workers' Party to send a clear message that it's possible to rebuild the country after a huge destruction that uh, Bolsonaro had, including horrific policies during the pandemic that uh, cost the lives of uh, about 700,000 people. Right. Yeah, I think the death toll in Brazil, if I'm not mistaken, was second only to the death toll in the United States. And, uh, of course, there's a link there between the reckless and deliberately uh, anti-science policies of both the Trump administration and Jair Bolsonaro. Maria, there have been concerns that Jair Bolsonaro, if he were to lose this runoff election, will organize a coup. And there's a lot of question about the loyalty of the military to democracy. What are your concerns at this moment as the nation of Brazil prepares for the second and final round of the election? Yeah, I think this is still a risk. So it's very important for people to be aware of that. And that's why, you know, it was the hope was that Lula uh, could win in the first round. But still, I think that uh, uh, the electoral court in Brazil is aware of the risk and uh, is taking important measures to protect that and to guarantee, to send a strong message that, uh, you know, we need. Uh, fair elections in the country. And Bolsonaro and his party are being investigated currently uh, for spreading fake news and for trying to create this doubt about the democratic system in Brazil. His discourse is very similar to Trump's discourse, saying that uh, he's not going to accept the result of the elections, that, you know, that is fraud involved. His strategy is to spread fear, and that's why people are concerned about that. That was Maria Luisa Mendonça, director of the Network for Social Justice and Human Rights in Brazil. Find more analysis and commentary on Brazil's presidential election by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org.
Just before its September 30th budget deadline, the U.S. Congress passed a continuing resolution to fund the government for a few more months. But the legislation did not include a bill pushed by West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin for fast-tracking the permitting of energy projects. His bill would have greatly reduced the ability of federal agencies in the public to weigh in on the approval of energy infrastructure projects and a requirement for the completion of the frack gas Mountain Valley Pipeline through Virginia and West Virginia and possibly North Carolina. Democratic Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi, and President Joe Biden all agreed to help pass Manchin's plan in exchange for his vote supporting the Inflation Reduction Act. In response, climate activist groups mobilized and threw everything they had at stopping what they called Manchin's dirty deal. They organized phone banks, in-person lobbying, a big rally on September 8th, and smaller direct actions throughout the month of September. Much of the work was coordinated through the 1,200-member People vs. Fossil Fuels Coalition. Between the lines, Melinda Tuhus, who participated in the work to stop Manchin's bill, spoke with Drew Hudson, a political consultant with several grassroots climate organizations, about how the energy legislation was stopped so far and what happens next. This was a really big victory, and credit does go to the grassroots activists uh, who helped make it happen. Um, the way that the victory came about was uh, a mixture of democratic opposition, which was driven primarily by those grassroots and especially environmental justice groups. Before you know the grassroots came out in opposition, nobody was opposed to the idea of Manchin getting a special deal that benefited his special projects in exchange for the Inflation uh, Reduction Act. Originally, this was uh, considered a non-controversial plan, but once people began to talk about the specifics, there was a watermarked version of watermarked by the American Petroleum Institute version of the bill that leaked early. And then later, eventually, finally, Manchin did release the text of the bill that he wanted to attach to the continuing resolution. And it was basically the same as the API version had been. And so once it became clear that, yeah, this was really as bad as we had feared, uh, grassroots groups really came out in force. It started on September 8th with a big rally in Washington, D.C. We talked about fossil fuel projects all over the country and the danger of creating a sort of special expedited permitting regime for projects on energy that, that Joe Manchin would prefer, um, which would heavily benefit the fossil fuel industry. And from there, it really kicked off uh, in the House and the Senate. Bernie Sanders made a speech on that same day on September 8th on the floor. Uh, saying that he was opposed to the idea. And then a couple of days later, uh, Representative Grijalva in the House came out with his letter, which had about 75 signers on it in the House uh, by the time it was all done, and expressed the same kind of thing, strongly opposed to the idea of the deal, especially concerned about the environmental justice impacts of things like rolling back the National Environmental Policy Act, or NEPA, as well as the Clean Water Act. Um, that was one big uh, step of, of opposition to the bill. And the, the entreatment was really to leadership, to uh, Chuck Schumer in the Senate and Nancy Pelosi in the House, not to make Democrats uh, have that terrible decision to have to decide whether to keep the government open and functioning, which, of course, is one of the most basic jobs of Congress, uh, or to vote for this really bad uh, side deal with Joe Manchin. The last nail in the coffin is that Republicans were opposed to the bill. Most Republicans voted against the continuing resolution anyway, even without Manchin's deal attached. Uh, and even though it contained, for example, emergency relief funding for some of their own states and other things. 
so we know that this is temporary. As you said, all environmental victories are temporary. This one may be especially temporary because Biden and Manchin are still talking about, you know, attaching this to another must-pass bill. So what do we think the future holds and how soon is this likely to come up again? We're in the clear, we think, just for a couple of weeks, uh, mostly because Congress goes on recess for, for several weeks. The main vehicles we're looking at are in what's called the lame duck session. So after uh, the election on November 8th uh, and before the next Congress takes uh, its seats in uh, January of 2023. Joe Manchin in particular had talked about possibly attaching the deal to the National Defense Authorization Act as a next step. Again, that will come up in the lame duck session between the election and the new year. There has been some already some pushback uh, from Republicans again, uh, saying that they don't think that the defense spending bill, the National Defense Authorization Act, should be used in that way to do domestic policy. Of course, in the Senate, you know, this really co will come down again to what does Chuck Schumer want to do and what level of brinksmanship is he prepared to play with whatever bill he's attaching Manchin's dirty deal to. I think what we've seen is that there's a, a solid block of opposition, more than 50 senators, more than 75 members of the House are very much opposed to the idea of Manchin's permanent deal. Uh, in the Senate, a bunch of those are Republicans and they think it doesn't go far enough. And a couple of them are Democrats who think it's uh, too friendly to fossil fuels. But either way, the dynamics are the same. There aren't the votes to pass it as a standalone bill right now. So uh, Schumer can do a couple of things to get around that. One is he can keep trying to attach it to other unrelated pieces of legislation and hope that there's enough stuff in the underlying legislation that people will sort of feel like they have to vote for it, even if they don't like the mansion dirty deal being attached. The other option that he always has before him, and we've been encouraging him to explore this, is he could just send the bill through the regular committee process. Joe Manchin, of course, is the chair of the Senate Energy Committee. That is the committee that would have jurisdiction over Manchin's permitting bill, which deals with energy infrastructure. There's absolutely no reason why Joe Manchin can't hold a committee hearing on his own bill and ask people to vote for it and just act like a normal senator as opposed to someone who thinks that he's king of energy policy in America and just, you know, put forward his ideas and, and there would be amendments and there'd be opportunities for both Republicans and Democrats to say, we, we like this part, we don't like that part. On the Democratic side, a lot of folks were talking about with the Manchin Dirty Deal, they really liked the the parts of the bill that dealt with electric transmission reform. And there is a sense that we may need to build more power lines faster uh, in this country to deal with growing renewable energy supply, which is part of what the Inflation Reduction Act is supposed to do, is, is help us build more renewable energy. And then how's that renewable energy going to get from the solar panel or the wind turbine into somebody's house or business or a big city uh, farther away from those sources? So there's a bunch of different ways that Schumer and Manchin, if they want to, could try and build a coalition of 50 senators to support this. But they would have to do it through regular order. If they keep going back to the same strategy of attaching it to unrelated spending bills, I think they will probably keep having the same problem. That was Drew Hudson, a political consultant with several grassroots climate groups. Learn more about the coalition organizing opposition to Joe Manchin's fossil fuel-friendly dirty deal by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. Listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org. 
where you can hear our current and archive programs in streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on KMUD in Garberville, California, KODX in Seattle, Washington, Radio Helsinki in Graz, Austria, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris. Thank you.